Hey everyone, welcome to the Crypto Unstacked podcast. I'm your host, Leslie Lamb. Wherever you are, whoever you are, crypto skeptic, half believer, or enthusiast, it's really great to have you tuning in to Crypto Unstacked, where we bring you a cup of crypto every week and unstack everything from crypto finance to global macroeconomics. This podcast assumes basic knowledge of crypto and aims to explore some more advanced topics about the crypto markets, such as trading strategies, lending, and derivatives. The Crypto Unstacked podcast is meant for informational purposes only and should not be considered as financial or investment advice. Nothing expressed in this podcast should be construed as a solicitation, recommendation, endorsement, or offer by Amber Group to buy or sell any financial products. Information expressed by the host or guest in this podcast does not necessarily reflect the views of Amber Group. This week on Crypto Unstacked, we chat with Harry Sudduck, Director of Strategy at Grid, one of the preeminent mining infrastructure companies in North America. In this episode, Harry talks about his team's year-long global search for the right mining location and why they ultimately chose to come back to the U.S. to set up their mining facility. Harry also shares deep insights on topics including Grid's process for evaluating infrastructure partners, his take on the ridiculous way that mining hardware is currently priced, why he is not that bothered by mining centralization, and his global macro take on Bitcoin. Harry is as bullish as ever on mining in North America, and I'm sure you'll have a lot to take away. Thanks for tuning in, and I hope you enjoy this week's episode. Hey, Harry. Welcome to Crypto Unstacked. It's really great to have you join me on the pod. Thanks, Leslie. Great to be here. I've been really looking forward to our conversation today. You've always been a trusted source for all things mining. So to kick off, we'd love for you to tell us about yourself and how you ended up at Grid. Yeah, absolutely. So I, I took a, a bit of a, a roundabout path to you know big, heavy infrastructure through the dark underbelly of financial services. Midway through college, I had the opportunity to join an early stage fintech. We built optimization software for you know 150 hedge funds that you've probably heard of, including one that has recently allocated significantly to Bitcoin, which is very exciting. And so saw that company through an exit to the CME, stayed at the CME for a year during during which time I, I got bitten by the by the Bitcoin bug and started to go down the rabbit hole, got obsessed. That synced up really nicely with getting fed up with big company life and was ready to go back to the start of a startup, at which point I was really fortunate to meet our founder and CEO, Trey Kelly, and join Grid as the first employee. Nice. And I have to ask, what's the story behind the name? Yeah. So, you know, we really see Bitcoin mining as a bigger vision for what energy infrastructure can be. And so when we think about what part of our daily lives does Bitcoin mining fit into 25 years from now, it's going to be a key piece of our electrical infrastructure, which is all run on the grid. So we had an opportunity to, to swipe GRIID.com. So we we became grid. And anytime you get that five letter dot com and it fits in exactly with your with your mission, gotta go for it. 
Yeah, exactly. Uh, so you mentioned Trey Kelly, the founder. Who who else is on your team and whereabouts are your facilities based? Can you give us the lowdown and help us visualize your mining campuses? Yeah, for sure. We have the great fortune of being a fully distributed team from inception. So we've got electrical engineers in Washington and a CTO in Austin, and I'm in terrifying New York City. So, you know, we, we really... Uh, have been sort of all about this distributed workforce. The team is basically myself and Trey, CTO, electrical engineer, VP of, of energy, as well as some more hands-on director of operations types who actually are you know physically on site. We're based in the central US and we think about the team more so from the perspective of the background. So I come from the financial services world. Trey and our CTO, Mike Hamilton, come from the cybersecurity kind of ethos. We've got folks who are well, well-versed in big power and have worked at some of the other large sort of mining companies that you've heard of. We bring together sort of a team of diverse but on-topic backgrounds. So that, that's kind of been the approach to the team assembly. Nice. So it seems like you guys complement each other quite well from your different experiences, which I think is always helpful when starting up Mining Farm, which takes lots of different expertise, right? Mining is, is not just about understanding crypto, but as we'll get to a little bit later, being able to communicate with folks outside of the digital asset industry as well. Totally. And I think, I think it's a great point you made that as much as you've kind of fall down the Bitcoin rabbit hole and you got to go through game theory. And, and all these other sort of disparate, you know, cryptography, these disparate fields of study, we feel that mining is the exact same process. You got to go deep on network engineering. You got to go deep on electrical engineering. You got to go deep on local municipality rules and regulations. You got to go deep with how you're sourcing that power. It's similarly this intersection of a broad range of disciplines. And if you don't have the skill set in-house to really handle those, you're not going to be able to run a competitive operation. And from my understanding, there are different ways to get involved in the mining space. What is Grid's current mining business model? For sure. At Grid, we pride ourselves on our business model that fully vertically integrates incentives. So, you know, we don't do any hosting, we don't do any colo, rack space for lease, like none of that stuff fits within our, our business model or our mission. You know, we go out and we purchase the land that we work, that we operate on. We'll sign long-term power agreements or source the power generation ourselves. You know, we have all of the engineering capabilities in-house. All of the, you know, architecture and design work happens within grids for electronic walls. So from a business model perspective, we self-mine and we think that that's the way that we unlock the maximum sort of value accrual in the mining business. And has this model pivoted? at all since you guys launched? Uh, only very slightly. Originally, you know, we really looked deeply at the hosting option. When we started the company, you know, it was really a, an opportunity to go on a search for power. So we went to lots of countries that you might never have dreamed to find yourself in. Uh, looking for that elusive half a penny power. As it turns out, that's really hard to find and almost impossible to find in a jurisdiction that upholds property rights. We went on this eight to 12 month search um, and ended up back in the U.S., once we made the decision to come back to the U.S. And, and vertically integrate, we really took hosting off the table because it doesn't serve to align incentives properly. The closest thing we have to a customer is an employee, a shareholder, or a community that we operate in. What was the most surprising thing during that 8 to 12 month trip that you talked about that took you around the world? Um, the most surprising thing for me was the Chinese power landscape, where you hear about the, oh, well, it's going to be the wet season, the hash rate's going to rise. And that's true. But, you know, we found that the power in Inner Mongolia or Sichuan is really pretty similar to the power opportunities in the US from a pricing perspective. And we don't have to deal with any of that seasonality. So it was really encouraging for us and, and validated some assumptions 
to be able to see that firsthand and confirm that the power costs in the U.S. are right in lockstep with those in mainland China. Going back to what we talked about just at the start of the conversation, you know, I didn't realize how many different parties are involved in running a mining facility. You know, It's not just one big team of crypto enthusiasts. Uh, you have to talk to different power companies, construction companies, local government officials. What's your process for evaluating potential infrastructure partners who thankfully, it seems like, are all in the U.S. region? You're not managing facilities abroad. It's a great question, and this to me is a, a big mis, uh, misconception in the in the mining space, where you know some guys in a warehouse plugging in as many machines as possible. And probably when Trey and I were first rolling out our business plan, if you talk to me or him in 2019, we would have said, "Well, we just need 5,000 outlets. How do I get 5,000 outlets to plug A6 into?" And it turns out that's not really the way that any of this works. So it's it's much more an exercise in dealing with traditional real estate, traditional construction traditional utility relationships. A lot of the work that we do is small town politics and making sure that you know we understand who the stakeholders are in the communities that we're operating in and delivering value to them in such a way where, where they feel excited to have our business in their backyard. You know, we've seen a lot of those sort of local relationships break down with other miners in the industry, you know, some high profile, some less high profile, but we see ourselves really in, in lockstep with the folks at our general contractor, the folks in our local jurisdiction. And it takes a village to get one of these things off the ground and to make it a success. And so we're, we're incredibly proud and humbled by the trust that those folks have placed in us to have us in their homes. Right. And one part of this mining process that you really do need to actually communicate abroad for is hardware, right? And I'll have to admit, hardware is the sexiest topic to talk about when it comes to mining, but it's definitely an important input cost for miners. So let's spend some time talking about this because I know you have an interesting perspective. What's your hardware procurement strategy right now? Are you needing to deal with a lot of international communication? Uh, yeah, the short answer is yes. Right now, the only path to acquiring hardware at scale, at least for, for new generation machines, is to source them from Bitmain, What's Miner, uh, MicroBT, eBank, Canon, Inno. You know, those are all Chinese based companies dealing with the large scale procurement that we have to go through just because of the site size that we typically deal with. There's significant hurdles and, and those are not limited to pricing, availability, logistics, all of the complexity that comes with procurement you know, of large scale purchases amplified by the natural skepticism that comes with dealing with crypto to crypto business. Mm -hmm. And what do you think about the way hardware rigs are priced right now? That I know is a contentious topic amongst a lot of miners, but you have an interesting take. Yeah, you know me well enough to know exactly where, where, where to push my buttons. But let's just take crypto out of it for a moment and imagine that we're either operating a gold mine or we're operating an oil well. And I'm the oil well operator. And you're the, uh, the manufacturing company that sells me, you know, my drill, let's just say. And I ask you, you know, I want to buy a drill that will accomplish digging 100 feet into the ground. And you said to me, great, I'll get back to you in three days based on the price of oil or the price of gold. I'm going to price my drill. That's insane. insane. Yeah. Doesn't make any sense, you know, and, and all, all due respect to the mining hardware operators, because they figured out a way to make a ton of money where they get to price their hardware relative to the asset that it extracts from the ground, not 
relative to their cost of production, which frankly is what I would really like to see is, is wake up a day from now, but realistically, probably several years from now. And what they're doing is they're saying it costs us $100 to manufacture this thing. We're going to charge a really nice, healthy 50% margin, and they'll charge me $150, you know, for the $100 unit that it takes them to manufacture. And I'm not dealing with, you know, well, what's the dollars per terahash? And then what's the wattage efficiency? And we're going to run this crazy algorithm and power to them because they figured out a way to make a ton of money while there aren't a lot of competitors in the industry. But as as folks continue to enter, you know, the hardware markets as, you know, maybe some more mature providers, I would really expect to see that pricing model get flipped off of its head back onto its feet. And we'll see something, you know, a little more similar to the way chip procurement works in other industries. Right. And another input cost for miners that differs depending on what region you're in, the type of equipment that you use is energy, right? So let's switch gears here and talk a bit about energy. What different types of energy sources do miners typically use? And as you've mentioned, energy is not homogenous. Yeah, this is right at the heart of the mining business. So the the energy that you use will represent the single largest monthly line item cost if you're running an efficient mine. You know, this is where the battle is won and lost. And whenever I'm having a conversation about Bitcoin is bad for the environment FUD, this is my response, which is not all energy is created equal. You know, there's a massive difference between a kilowatt hour of Indian coal versus hydroelectric in Canada. You know, those two kilowatt hours will power the same amount of computing but they are not, you know, created equal. They have dramatically different effects, you know, on the areas that they are run in. So what we do at Grid is is we've developed, in, you know, incredibly strong and tight relationships with with public utilities, um, and we've gone the road of procuring our power in front of the meter, but with what I found to be unprecedented contractual uh, moat. So when we think about the mining industry at this point, there's really sort of three energy procurement strategies. We're engaged in all three, but to date, we've executed on, on the public utility model exclusively so far. There's the opportunity for you to, to go to an unregulated market and operate or contract with generation that sits behind the meter. So that's like a, an upstate New York or an ERCOT in Texas. There's the energy recapture model, which is really sexy right now and for good reason, which is all of these flared gas operations. And we get a lot of insight from the folks over at Great American Mining and, and the folks at Crusoe. We think that they're grade A operators, but they're operating almost an entirely different business model than us. And, and that's in Texas, right? Oh, uh, it's it's broader than Texas. There are well pads in Canada, you know, North Dakota, Oklahoma. You know, there, there's a lot of, of places where there's oil and gas well pads, and that gas is typically being re- recaptured intergeneration um, and run in container solutions at the well site. That's happening in Colorado, Wyoming. It, it's sort of that Midwest up into Canada region. I see. Okay. Got it. Um, so there's the behind the meter typical generation, there's recapture, and then there's the opportunity to go in front of the meter. The pushback in the past has been that that's not it's not cost effective, um, but we think that you know some of our special sauce is that that we've unlocked you know the competitive power costs that the other models can provide, but in front of a utility. Mm-hmm. And speaking of Bitcoin is bad for the environment FUD, Nick Carter, investor at Castle Island Ventures, wrote an article recently on Bitcoin's energy footprint. For our listeners, if you guys haven't read it already, I highly recommend it. The title is called The Last Word on Bitcoin's Energy Consumption, and you can find it on Coindesk. Towards the end of the article, he writes, it's just a matter of opinion as to whether the existence of a non-state synthetic monetary commodity is a good idea. Effectively, whether you accept the notion of a fiat alternative like Bitcoin, right? Mm -hmm. 
And I know you talk to a lot of folks outside of the digital asset industry and probably get asked this question a lot. So could you expand further on your last word? on the Bitcoin energy debate, Harry? <laughs> sure. Really a huge fan of, of Nick and Matt at Castle Island. We think that they're some of the best in class VCs in the industry and speak with them fairly regularly. The last word on Bitcoin energy mining is that it's not bad for the environment. That's, that is the last word. All of the data suggests that the energy sources that contribute to Bitcoin mining are greener than, than every other industry on planet Earth. Coin shares... Uh, estimates somewhere between, you know, I think 69 and 79% of the energy consumed by Bitcoin mining comes from greener renewable sources. And, you know, you really have to just take a peek into the economics of the issue. Bitcoin mining is best served when the energy cost is the cheapest. The whole model is run on the fact that the cheaper the energy, the wider the margins. You only have to go one Google search in to know that, you know, hydroelectric, solar, wind, nuclear, are all cheaper energy sources than fossil fuel-based opportunities, unless that fossil fuel opportunity involves a recapture. Anyone who's going to make it to Google search number two is going to know that releasing natural gas into the air is worse than burning the natural gas and releasing carbon dioxide into the air. And so if you cap that natural gas you know, release point and you burn it instead, you're dramatically decreasing the negative impact of the fossil fuel extraction process. So Bitcoin is not only a less bad opportunity, it's a positive force for good in terms of, you know, the, the green energy movement. There's a great follow on Twitter, um, Mark Schneider, and he coined the term the green nuclear deal. I had lunch with him in New York City. I, I fed him a pastrami because that's what you do when, when your southern friend comes to New York City. <laughs> and we talked about it and he's like, I didn't know about Bitcoin, but Bitcoin and nuclear energy is the is the marriage made in heaven. And, and we're going to wake up 10 or 20 years from now. And, you know, that's going to be sort of the table stakes is if you've got a nuclear energy source, you're going to be plugging Bitcoin ASICs in the parking lot in the back. Very cool. You heard it, guys. The last word. Let's not ask anyone else in the Bitcoin mining industry that question again. You heard it here <laughs> and you also have Nick's article, article. as well. <laughs> and another hot topic is the decentralization and centralization debate in mining. It's been ongoing. We're seeing more activity outside of the China region now. So things are expanding beyond the borders. What's your thoughts on mining centralization, you know, especially given the rise of more, for example, mining pools in China? It's unknown whether this new pool called Lupian is an independent mining pool. Binance is the latest exchange to join the party. So what's your thoughts here? Yeah, I, I think that, you know, this is another topic that really deserves some attention. The first point I'll make is that mining centralization needs to be split into two significantly different camps. One of them is hash centralization. So where is that computing being performed? And is that a centralized vector? The other is pool centralization. And that's a completely different thing. Um, pool centralization doesn't keep me up at night for a single minute. Uh, the switching costs between pools are very, very low. So if we were to, for some reason, see a pool behave maliciously or a pool accumulate an alarming amount of the hash rate, we would see miners stop contributing to that pool overnight. You know, so we our, our ability to change between between pool one and pool two is an easy same hour change operationally for us. And our expectation is it would be the same across all of the sort of in, industrial scale operations 
globally. Hash centralization is, is a totally different beast. And that comes down to, you know, where is the available power and what are the incentives of that miner? The way things stand, hash centralization isn't ideal, but it's similarly not something that really keeps me up at night because, you know, everybody is economically incentivized to be a good actor because Bitcoin mining is sort of where their their bread gets buttered. And if there were to you know, be a significant coordination of miners to either attack the network or to censor transactions, you know, Bitcoin would lose one of its core value propositions, being censorship resistant, fixed supply, hard digital money, and it would undermine sort of the invested dollars in that operation. The other angle that I've seen folks discuss centralization around is, well, what if there's a state actor who comes in seizes all the rigs and then attacks the network because now they're able to. And the 50,000 pound gorilla in that room is is certainly the Chinese government coming in and saying, you know, we're going to seize 40, 50, 60% of the hash rate that's estimated to be operating in mainland China. That's the most alarming of the three, but still really doesn't get me there. At this point, just because Bitcoin is small and the cost of operationalizing that type of takeover is really significant. And, you know, miners are pretty disparate and not always easy to locate. So the takeaway there is that pool centralization, I don't worry about at all. Hash centralization in a single location operating under independent mining leadership doesn't keep me awake really at all. I'd like to see it continue to centralizing, but at this point, I don't think that it's a particularly viable attack vector. And then government takeover particularly by the Chinese government, is the most salient centralization argument. But still, there would be you know pretty dramatic coordination needed on their part and execution needed on their part that makes it uh, seem to me unlikely to be viable. And in the world where Bitcoin is big enough to threaten the sovereignty of the fiat operators, um, my expectation is that hash rate would have been sufficiently decentralized by the time the network grows that large. So before we move on to the next topic, let's take a quick break and hear a few words about Amber Group. This episode of the Crypto Unstacked podcast is presented by Amber Group. Amber Group is a fully integrated crypto finance platform offering a suite of secondary market services across trading, wealth management, and financing solutions. We are backed by some amazing investors such as Paradigm and Pantera and work with clients and partners all over the world. Head on over to ambergroup.io to learn more about us. That's A-M-B-E-R-G-R-O-U-P dot I-O. Harry, we've heard time and time again that the inability to lock in revenue prevents more capital from coming into the space. One way for miners to lock in revenue is to sell hash rate. And this source of cash flow could be a crucial form of hedging for the miner. But while there are secondary markets that exist uh, in North America and in China as well, it's well known that the liquidity in these markets is not great. And most of these hash rate transactions are still done via OTC, so over the counter. What's your view on the development of a liquid hash rate market? And what are some challenges you see? Yeah, thank you. I think that you're spot on that the OTC model uh, is what we've seen successful so far to date. And I largely expect that to continue. These are you know, hedging instruments that you know, transparently we've engaged in and have been pleased with you know, the success of them. Would I like to have more optionality around 
uh, duration and more price discovery, of course, I always want more of that available to me. But you know, by and large, we think that the OTC model is sort of the only viable one, just because of the implicit counterparty risk in these in these types of instruments. Imagine a world where there's a spot market for hash, especially the you know the physical delivery of hash. How do you guarantee that I'll continue contributing? my hash rate to that contract if I'm a miner from jurisdiction scary scary. Right. You know, so so there's a there's a counterparty risk component to the physical delivery of hash. So then maybe you you have to go up a, a layer of abstraction and and do maybe what FTX is doing where you're creating like a pure play per on top of hash. That's probably m- more viable to execute and to, you know, abstract away counterparty risk, but like who's the natural hash rate short? We've been really happy with the relationship we have with Biduda and with Tim Kelly over there. What we've talked about with them is that there's this alignment of natural longs and natural shorts that you have to find before you're able to design an elegant hedging product. And so far, you know, their OTC product is, is the best one we've seen. Yeah. And speaking of Tim Kelly, also check out Castle Island Ventures podcast. He actually just went on, I think it must have been a few weeks ago, but they've just published that podcast and they talk a bit about how they construct those difficulty contracts. It's it's very, very interesting. And they're sort of pioneering that space in North America. So we just need more guys like that, you know, coming out with innovative products for miners and also for miners to tell the financial services guys what they want, right, based on the risks that they're facing. Because the financial services side, let me tell you, we can't build it on our own. Because if we don't know uh, the risks that you face, we're just going to end up building stuff that you don't need. So increasing communication between the two sides, I think, is super important. Agreed. Agreed. We are entering a period of great monetary inflation. That's something that Paul Tudor Jones talked about during his interview. But it's not clear how this will play out across global markets over time, at least in the next few months, let's call it. So what's your global macro take on Bitcoin right now? It's a good day to be long Bitcoin. That's my default position at this point. The world's not getting any less crazy. The Federal Reserve in the US and, and central banks globally are not going to get any tighter. I don't really think they can. You know, we're going to see the continued monetization of the treasury. So the central bank regime globally is going to print every dollar or every local currency that they can. I tweet this sometimes, but you know, every dollar that can be printed will be printed. And so it's up to us in the Bitcoin community to say we've had it, to say that we, we are not willing to allow the Cantillon effect to rob us of, of our wealth and devalue the price of our time. Because at the end of the day, you know, this isn't the global macro take, this is the philosophical take of, of why Bitcoin. But the reason why we Bitcoin is because we're fundamentally able to restore the value of our time, which is the same thing as saying it restores the value of our lives. We, If we think of, of Bitcoin as a means to properly price time, then we'll all suddenly wake up to the fact that allowing a third party to print currency implicitly devalues the work that we've done across the span of our of our years. And that's unacceptable. So we've created a, a better money and a better system that's going to be able to allow us to properly value our lives. That's where I come at it from. But then you you know insert that into a, a global monetary regime where there's mass currency debasement. You know that that's very clear. You know if you look at historical United States M two, like that number grew by trillions this year. I don't know how we don't see long ranging effects. And and you know I think we're going to see a short term, you know a short term deflationary period because the dollar is stronger on a relative basis to other fiats. 
And then the great inflation and the great hyper-Bitcoinization, you know, comes back on the table mm -hmm. after that. I think the dollar is a great invention right now for, for global settlement and, you know, settling global obligations. So I think of two relationships. There's the relationship between the dollar and the foreign and the, and the FX, the foreign currency. Let's say you're earning revenues in rubles but you're settling obligations in dollars, the strengthening dollar will put its boot on your neck as a business. We see the same dynamic between Bitcoin and dollars. We're earning revenue in Bitcoin, but we're paying expenses in dollars, right. which over time is going to prove to be one of the most powerful relationships that any business can be exposed to. Having, you know, having a fundamentally a Bitcoin-denominated revenue engine and a dollar-denominated expense obligation, that relationship is going to function the same way that dollar settlements and ruble revenue uh, will function in, in the rest of the world. It's, it's going to accrue major, major value to the harder currency earner. Well said. Yeah, I agree with you there. We have smart money investors tuning in every week to the podcast, and they want to know how to get involved in mining. And you've claimed that mining is the most approachable and investable area of the crypto ecosystem. Can you share with our listeners why that's the case? Certainly. So I have to caveat it. Buying $1,000 of Bitcoin on Cash App is probably easier than investing in mine. That's, that's a, that's a, re, that's a re reasonable critique of my point. But let's, let's say it's not $1,000. Let's say it's you know, $50 million. Going and finding $50 million of spot Bitcoin to buy isn't easy. Then you could maybe you could do it with with the CME futures at this point and and get reasonable liquidity and you know the slippage won't crush you. But there's a website I think it's Bitcoinity.data and they look at the the aggregated order books across the largest exchanges. And when I checked last, you know a, a sixty two million dollar spot purchase moves Bitcoin price more than ten percent. So you know these order books are still thin and it, it's tough to deploy capital at size. So that's why, you know, we think that the, the mining investment angle is so attractive is that number one, it, it opens the door to being able to deploy, you know, significant dollars at size. But number two, we're not just, you know, an investment in Bitcoin, we're an investment in real estate in hard assets, there's tangible book value, we have a real balance sheet before the first Bitcoin gets mined. So we think that the the mining, you know, industry, especially in an operation that's vertically integrated like ours, mm -hmm. represents, you know, the most attractive type of institutional grade exposure to a Bitcoin correlated asset. So that's really more specifically what I mean, you know, that if you're an institution, looking to deploy size, mining is the most de-risked mechanism by which to get that exposure without sacrificing anything to the upside. For sure. You know, mining, it's really about balancing securing short-term rewards and, you know, surviving for the long term, sustaining the operation years on end, not just, you know, one-year clips at a time. So how does Grid plan for the future in an arguably volatile industry like crypto. Certainly. So when I look at my my models and, and the spreadsheets, you know what I never do is plug in Bitcoin upside price. That's not part of my workflow. We are a business that is entirely aligned around mitigating downside risk and surviving down market. So we internally, culturally have a rule, which is, I say it all the time, rule number one, don't die. The mining business just has to not die and it works. What that means is we optimize around the lowest power cost possible. We keep the team pretty lean. We shave out any sort of unnecessary expense and, and run an incredibly tight ship because we know that Bitcoin price is going to do things like get cut in half overnight. Mm -hmm. The volatility in the market is certainly there. And we know that 
you know, the opportunities when those things happen are massive and being able to, to, to have, you know, dry powder cash on hand to go, you know, go buy a distressed asset, to go scoop up cheaper ASICs. You know, those are, those are massive, massive fleeting opportunities. And so putting ourselves in a position to seize them and deploy them effectively in those crisis moments will pay massively down the road. So we follow rule number one, don't die. And that means have the highest survivability rate based on bearish or negative Bitcoin price action. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I'm excited to follow your progress, not only this year, of course, in a very unprecedented year, as they say, for 2020, but hopefully when things start to normalize 2021 and going forward, things can start to follow plans accordingly, as I'm sure a lot of operations were deviated. But <laughs> again, like you said, if you're prudent with your funds, you're focused on what you're trying to build out, you will be on the path towards success. Oh, thank you. So now I want to move on to the part of our conversation where our listeners can get to know you, Harry Sadduck, a bit more. So what important truth about the crypto space or mining more specifically do you believe in that few might agree with you on? This is a great one. So I think about the Bitcoin space generally, I think that we're thinking too small. I think that there's been tremendous success and Bitcoin has been mainstreamed, you know, more than we could have ever imagined even just a few years ago. But I think that we need to go bigger. I was reading recently a great quote from one of the Amazon, I think it's an investigative journalist, wrote a book about Amazon, and he talked about the advent of of AWS and just how massively Bezos was dreaming about what AWS and S3 could become. He said it needs to scale infinitely. And I've taken that lesson to heart. Bitcoin needs to be able to grow infinitely to price every single asset on the planet. You know, if we look at what that means, it means that, you know, 500 plus trillion dollars in today's purchasing power will be subsumed by Bitcoin's market cap. And, and that's just where we're headed. And, and so dreaming bigger is the, the mission that I am on and that I would encourage other folks to be on because I, I think that we're we're underselling the potential of this asset. So think big, have a grand vision and work hard to achieve that vision, right? Totally. And as always, I like to end our time together with a round of rapid fire, mining edition. <laughs> Are you ready? Mm-hmm. So we'll start easy. Bitcoin, bullish or bearish? Bullish. Crypto mining becoming a true free market, bullish or bearish? Cautiously bullish. This was a bit tricky. (laughs) (laughs) Uh, What is a development within the mining industry that has surprised you over this past year? Um, I'm most surprised at Bitmain, frankly. I thought they were I thought they were in more trouble earlier than they were and I think that they are in more trouble now than I would have expected you know given that they came out of the bear market successfully so I'm I'm surprised both to the downside and to the upside at different points in the last couple of years. And what excites you going forward about the crypto mining industry? I'm excited about the folks who see opportunity in crypto mining. I'm excited that the the Peter Thiels and the Baines of the world are coming into the industry because, you know, historically they've been incredibly directionally right. I think they are again. I'm excited about the capital partners we're going to get to work with over the next 10 years. And I'm also really, really, really excited about the rise in North American hash and, and what it's going to do for the energy systems that we all rely on as retail consumers and how those are going to be bolstered by the presence of mining in, in our lives. Excellent. And before we let you go, Harry, how can our listeners get in touch with you and learn more about grid? Uh, they're welcome to, to just email me at, at harry at grid.com, G-R-I-I-D. Uh, and they're also able to find me on Twitter, which is just harry, H-A-R-R-Y underscore S-U-D-O-C-K on Twitter. 
Great. Harry, as always, our conversation leaves me with more questions to think about. Appreciate your insight and you taking the time to come on Crypto Unstuck podcast with me this week. Thanks for having me, Leslie. I appreciate it. As always, hope you enjoyed this week's Cup of Crypto. If you like what you heard, please share and subscribe on Spotify and anchor.fm slash crypto unstacked. Do engage with us through social media. I'll provide details in the show notes and connect with me on Twitter at Les Lambeau. That's L-E-S-L-A-M-B-0. Would love to chat with you. Thanks so much for tuning in. Take care and see you at our next episode.